We're going to be continuing to walk through uh, Matthew. So if you'll open up your Bibles with me to Matthew 9, verse 35. Uh, It's in page 814 in your pew Bible. We're going to be looking at a bigger passage this morning. It's somewhat of a narrative passage describing a commissioning of his 12 disciples. So what we're going to do this morning is simply just kind of walk through this story, and I'll point out some observations and points that hit me. So again, Matthew 9, 35, we're going to be reading all the way through 10, 25 this morning. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Now, if you remember where we just came out of, we had the large section of the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached, and then there was a few chapters just explaining miracle after miracle of what Jesus was doing. And now we come to this. So it basically is explaining he continued to do that throughout all of Israel. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour, 
For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Going back to chapter 9, verse 35, we see the description of the pattern of Jesus' ministry. Went throughout all cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. He had a dual approach to his ministry. He would preach, and then he would use miracles to testify to the truth that he was preaching. But we see the primary role of his ministry was preaching and teaching. Luke 4.18, when he just started his ministry, he was in his hometown reading a passage, and he says, this passage is about me. And here's what it said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And later on that same chapter, he says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. The primary ministry that Jesus had was preaching and teaching in the local churches, the synagogue. But he backed it up with miracles. Amazing miracles. And we see this interacting with the Jewish beliefs of the time in a really interesting way. They had a belief that we sometimes often fall into, that you are sick or you're hurt or you're oppressed or there are things wrong with you because you sinned. There's a story where a blind man comes to Jesus and the Pharisees are with him and they ask him, who sinned, this guy or his parents, that he's blind? And we see it interacting with what they believe because there's a story of them bringing a paralyzed man to Jesus and they ask, can you heal me? And he says, yeah, I'll heal you. Your sins are forgiven. He healed the the true hurt, the sin. But then he says, so that you know I have authority to do this, get up and walk. And the man walks away. It's easy for someone to just say, oh, your sins are forgiven. But the ability for him to then turn around and actually have the paralyzed man get up and walk verified his God-given authority to the Jews. Continues on to verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. 
Here we see the fruits of the ministry of the Pharisees and Sadducees. A lost people without direction, without hope. And Jesus reacts with compassion. And from that compassion, he launches into what we're going to look at the rest of the passage. And he then turns to his disciples and says, The harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into the harvest. It's interesting to look at what he tells them to pray about. The focus of his prayer is not on the people who have the problem, but it's on the workers who will go out to help the people. He prays for the, the true need. The harvest is re- it's there. The harvest is ready. All it needs is to be gathered in. He prays for the true need, the workers of the harvest. The prayer is focused on the point of maximum effect and highest contribution. And it's detailed. It's very specific and it's meaningful. In a sense, it's, it's uh, verifiable. When you pray, we need five more workers. That's verifiable. You can look back and say, those five workers came. Do you have prayers that would be absolutely obvious when they're answered? Are they, are they specific and pointed so that when it is answered, you can say, that, that was an answer. That was an answer to prayer. A verifiable yes or no that you can point to. It's interesting the angle he takes on what to pray for in the face of this crowd that he has compassion on. So he brings his 12 disciples to him. Verse 1 of chapter 10, he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. So he brings his 12 to him and he empowers them for supernatural ministry. So he sees this crowd that's desperate, lost, and what does he do first? He doesn't work harder. He doesn't start moving faster to reach more towns. He gathers his team of closest leaders, and he says, now it's your turn. He empowers his group of leaders to go out and have their shot at bat. To success or failure, And it's important to note, too, we see in verse uh, 2 through 4 that this is specific to the 12 disciples. He specifically empowers the 12 in this way for supernatural ministry. Even Judas, who later betrays him, which is a theological conundrum, I mean, even Judas, the man who later sells Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, 
is filled with the Spirit of God to heal people, cast out demons, and preach the kingdom. And we have to believe that he did, because they didn't come back and say, you know, this Judas guy is kind of weird. It didn't really work for him. But Judas was empowered, and he was sent out with the twelve. He's developing leaders that will someday change the world. What he does is he multiplies himself. He says, he looks, I mean, if we look back over the last few chapters, we see him preaching, he preached Sermon on the Mount, and we see him doing multiple miracles. And now he empowers them to do the same thing. He says, you've watched me do this, I'm empowering you, now go. Do it yourself. Try it. This would have been absolutely incredible to be one of the twelve. I mean, picture yourself in their position. They had been with Jesus watching him now every day for probably a few months, maybe. Seeing him do things no one had ever seen before. And now he turns around and says, I'm going to give you the same power to do the same thing. Now go. It would have been nerve-wracking, but it would have been pretty sweet. So then he gives them specific instructions on how they're supposed to go about this first commission, this first mission that they have. Verse 5. These twelve, Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It was a specific mission that they were going on. It was to only go to the Jews at this time. It was not time to bring in the Gentiles or the Samaritans. As he begins instructing them later, we'll see that he starts opening this up into the future, into the book of Acts, because he begins mentioning what will happen when they start talking to the Gentiles. Verse 7, next instruction, Proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. There was only one message that they had. They did not have the liberty to create their own lesson plans or their own topics to preach. It was one clear message. The kingdom of God is at hand. I'm sure they took liberties from message to message, but the core and the meaning of their message in every town was exactly the same. He goes on in verse 8. The first part of verse 8. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, and cast out demons. They were to preach one message, going only to Jewish towns. And as they did that, they were to remove disease and spiritual oppression everywhere they went. With the same pattern that Jesus had been doing. They would preach and then testify to the power of that preaching with miracles. Can you imagine how this would have shaken up that area? So like I said, Jesus has been doing ministry for a couple months now. Word has spread. People know about this Jesus teacher. And now, he sends out 12 of himself into Israel doing the same thing. 
it would have been the talk of every town in the region. Eight and nine, he gives them a little more specific instructions. The end of verse eight. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts. They were not to accept monetary payment for any of the ministry. This combined with his next instruction was a exercise of faith. But we see this interacting in the book of Acts a lot. Paul is healing people, and we have a magician coming up to him saying, hey, how much, how much do I got to pay you to be able to do that? And Paul essentially says, to hell with you and your money. Freely, you receive without paying, give without pay. It would take on a total different nature of ministry when money is not involved. Combine that with number 10, verse 10. No beg for your journey, two tunics or sandals or staff, for the laborer deserves his food. Don't, not only don't receive money, don't make any travel preparations. Just go. This would have been an amazing exercise of faith. Though be forced to live only day by day on the charity of other people and the provision of God. They have no idea where they're staying, no idea where they'll eat. Every day. Can you imagine how, what this would have done for their faith? How they would have grown as leaders? What a tangible way to experience God acting in their lives and providing for them as they went. The things that they required to complete the mission would be provided by God alone. 11 through 15, he gives some strange, really specific instructions on where they should stay. And I think a lot of this has to do with their culture and hospitality. It says, in whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave the house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. So they were to go into a town and essentially go door to door, knocking and sharing this message. Because in verse 14, the criteria for they were staying in the house is if they accepted the message. So they were coming into a town, going door to door, sharing their message. If someone accepts it, they stay at that house until they leave the town. And in addition to that, there was judgment for those who did not accept the message. Harsh judgment, it seems. It would be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. And here too you can see 
a sense of urgency here. There's kind of a, just keep moving. Go door to door. Talk to as many people as you can, and if they start rejecting you, move on to the next. Again, I have to mention that this was specific instruction for the twelve in this however long mission they were going to be going on. Who knows how long it was? We don't hear. could have been a couple weeks. But then at this point, Jesus expands his teaching farther into the future. And he begins telling them what will come after he leaves. And I I believe this because he mentions in verse 18 about Gentiles hearing. When he had just finished telling them, don't go to the Gentiles, just stay in Jewish towns. So he's expanding into the future saying, as you keep doing this, this is what you're going to come across. And in these instructions, we get a lot of insight for our lives and what it means to be harvest workers and a people of the message of God. Verse 16. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. So he tells them, you're going to meet opposition. It's not going to be easy. So be wise. Be on your guard. Keep watch over what's going on. Be observant. And be, be ready. But then he also says, be innocent as doves. Be innocent. Don't do anything wrong. Expect the best in people. Give people the benefit of the doubt. Be innocent. Let it not be said that when you go, someone hated something that you did. Be innocent. But the message that they bring and the message that we bring does cause hate. 17 through 21. Beware of men. They will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. You will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death and father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. There is a characteristic of the message that they're bringing. The message of Christ and the gospel and our need of salvation causes fierce division among those who don't want to hear it. Division among friends, division among families, to the point of persecution and death. We are often spared from this in the U.S., but it's not so in other areas of the world. 
daily. Families are divided and people are killed because of the message. It's a message that goes against the heart of man. It goes against our depravity and our pride hates it because we love thinking we can do it on our own. So humanity reacts against it. So he's warning them, be ready. This is not going to be a joy ride or a vacation. This message will cause turmoil everywhere you go. He points out some interesting characteristics of his workers here. 19 and 20, he says, When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak, what you are to say, for what you, will, what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. It's not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. He tells them, don't be anxious about what you're going to say. Have you ever been there? Played the conversation in your head before you get there? You're looking to some meeting or a confrontation that you need to have and you just play it over and over in your head hoping that you'll get it right and it goes the way you hope. What a tangible instruction to walk by faith. To be able to say to your soul, okay, shut up. I'm going to live by 19 and 20 right now. I'm going to stop worrying about this. The message I have is God's message. And He will give it to me when I need it. It's a tangible way to walk by faith and rests on a specific promise that God has for you. He goes on, another characteristic, verse 22. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. That's, there is somewhat of a characteristic. <laughs> you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. A characteristic of a worker going out into the harvest, is endurance. They will last. City after city, town after town, beating after beating, they will last. Because they know the message that they have. Verse 23, we see the tangible endurance. When, they're persecuted in one, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. Just keep going. Endure. Now, at the end of verse 23, there's a really weird line. Truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. So there are seven views on what this might mean. Two of them are just outright heresy. And five of them, they're all equally valid. 
but none of them impact the meaning of this text in any way. So I decided to skip it. <laughs> so that brings us to verse 24 and 25. <laughs> And this last few verses hit me hard. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher, and the servant like his master. So it's pretty simple so far, it makes sense. Servant is not above his master, student not above his teacher, it makes sense. But a disciple can be like his teacher. And that's encouraging. But here's where it gets hard. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? The reason I struggle with this couple verses is because it is absolutely inescapable logic. The degree to which you are like Christ is the degree to which you will experience persecution, suffering, and slander for His name's sake. And I'm not, not talking about just mean people against each other. I'm talking specifically people hating you because of Christ. The degree to which you are like Christ is the degree to which you experience suffering because of Him. So following that line, the less I experience suffering because of Him, the less I look like Him. And I find too much in my life that maybe I don't experience enough. And what does that mean? What does that mean about how close I am to the teacher? Do I have a desire to be like the teacher? Because it will not be an easy road. As I close... I wanted to read from a passage from uh, Spurgeon. This is what he wrote on these two verses. The scholar is not more excellent than the teacher, nor the servant than his master. Who would wish to see such a violation of all rule and order? Therefore, even if we had not even if we had not had so much respect paid to us as to our Lord, we ought to have been well content. If we receive the same treatment as our master, we have enough honor and more than we have a right to expect. What then if the master of the family is likened to Beelzebub, the fly god of the Philistines, and named after the prince of demons, by what names will they call us? Doubtless malice will quicken wit, and sarcasm will invent words which pierce as daggers and cut like knives, 
Thank God they may call us what they like, but they cannot make us evil. They can and will cast out our names as evil, for they call good evil and evil good. God was slandered in paradise and Christ on Calvary. How can we hope to escape? Instead of wishing to avoid bearing the cross, let us be content to endure dishonor for our King's sake. Let it be our ambition to be as our Master in all things. Since we are of His household, let us rejoice to share with the Master of the house. It is so great an honor to be of the royal household that no price is too high to pay in consequence. Close conformity to the image of their Lord is the glory of the saints. To be as his master is to every true servant the climax of his ambition. O Lord Jesus, our Savior King, we see how you were treated, and we joyfully enter into the fellowship of your sufferings. Grant us grace never to shrink in our loyalty to thee, no matter what the cost. There's a harsh reality as we continue to grow in Christ-likeness and continue to speak with boldness about Christ and the gospel. You will experience bumps in the road. But oh, that we would be a people who people are sick of because all we do is talk about Jesus. The world needs people like that. We're going to move to a time of communion, and it's uh, family communion this week. So the kids, um, four years and up, are just out the side doors here in the lounge over there, so you can go grab your kids and have communion together. But as we come to the table... Remember the sacrifice that Jesus gave to cover your sins. The freedom that that message has given us. But also remember the mission that we have and the direction we are headed as we are continually transformed into Christ-likeness. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the vivid story we have of our Savior. And the words He spoke, the things He taught, the things He did. Lord, I ask that You would ingrain that in us so we would live a life that is so unlike the other lives in this world. That our one desire would be to be like Christ, to be like our Master, our Teacher, and our Lord. We ask these things in His name. Amen.
stand and sing as we come forward. Man of sorrows, Lamb of God, by His own betrayed. The sin of man and wrath of God has been on Jesus Silent as he stood accused, beaten by 